Section twenty eight of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charlie. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four, by James Boswell. Section twenty eight. His fortitude and patience met with severe trials during this year. The stroke of the palsy has been related circumstantially, but he was also afflicted with the gout, and was besides troubled with a complaint which not only was attended with immediate inconvenience, but threatened him with a surgical operation from which most men would shrink. The complaint was a sarcocele, which Johnson bore with uncommon firmness, and was not at all frightened while he looked forward to amputation. He was attended by Mr. Pott and Mr. Cruikshank. I have before me a letter of the 30th of July this year to Mr. Cruikshank, in which he says, I am going to put myself into your hands, and another, accompanying a set of his Lives of the Poets, in which he says, I beg your acceptance of these volumes, as an acknowledgment of the great favours which you have bestowed on, sir, your most obliged and humble servant. I have in my possession several more letters from him to Mr. Cruikshank, and also to Dr. Mudge at Plymouth, which it would be improper to insert, as they are filled with unpleasing technical details. I shall, however, extract from his letters to Dr. Mudge such passages as shew either a felicity of expression or the undaunted state of his mind. My conviction of your skill and my belief of your friendship determine me to entreat your opinion and advice. In this state I, with great earnestness, desire you to tell me what is to be done. Excision is doubtless necessary to the cure, and I know not any means of palliation. The operation is doubtless painful, but is it dangerous? The pain I hope to endure with decency, but I am loath to put life into much hazard. Footnote. On September 22nd he wrote to Mrs. Thrale, if excision should be delayed, there is danger of a gangrene. You would not have me, for fear of pain, perish in putrescence. I shall, I hope, with trust in eternal mercy, lay hold of the possibility of life which yet remains. End of footnote. By representing the gout as an antagonist to the palsy, you have said enough to make it welcome. This is not strictly the first fit, but I hope it is as good as the first for it is the second that ever confined me, and the first was ten years ago, much less fierce and fiery than this. Write, dear sir, what you can to inform or encourage me. The operation is not delayed by any fears or objections of mine. To Bennet Langton, Esquire. Dear sir, you may very reasonably charge me with insensibility of your kindness, and that of Lady Roth's since I have suffered so much time to pass without paying any acknowledgment. I now at last return my thanks, and why I did it not sooner I ought to tell you. I went into Wiltshire as soon as I well could, and was there much employed in palliating my own malady. Disease produces much selfishness. A man in pain is looking after ease, and lets most other things go as chance shall dispose of them. In the meantime, I have lost the companion. Footnote. Mrs. Anna Williams. End of footnote. 
to whom I have had recourse for domestic amusement for thirty years, and whose variety of knowledge never was exhausted, and now return to a habitation vacant and desolate. I carry about a very troublesome and dangerous complaint, which admits no cure but by the surgical knife. Let me have your prayers, I am, etc. Samuel Johnson, London, September twenty ninth, 1783. Happily the complaint abated without his being put to the torture of amputation. But we must surely admire the manly resolution which he discovered while it hung over him. In a letter to the same gentleman he writes, The gout has within these four days come upon me with a violence which I never experienced before. It made me helpless as an infant. And in another, having mentioned Mrs. Williams, he says, Whose death following that of Levitt, has now made my house a solitude. She left her little substance to a charity school. She is, I hope, where there is neither darkness, nor want, nor sorrow. I wrote to him, begging to know the state of his health, and mentioned that Baxter's Anacreon, which is in the library at Auchinleck, was, I find, collated by my father in 1727, with the manuscript belonging to the University of Leyden, and he has made a number of notes upon it. Would you advise me to publish a new edition of it? His answer was dated September 30th. You should not make your letters such rarities when you know, or might know, the uniform state of my health. It is very long since I heard from you, and that I have not answered is a very insufficient reason for the silence of a friend. Your Anacreon is a very uncommon book, Neither London nor Cambridge can supply a copy of that edition. Whether it should be reprinted, you cannot do better than consult Lord Hales. Besides my constant and radical disease, I have been for these ten days much harassed with the gout. But that is now remitted. I hope God will yet grant me a little longer life, and make me less unfit to appear before him. He, this autumn, received a visit from the celebrated Mrs. Siddons, he gives this account of it in one of his letters to Mrs. Thrale. Mrs. Siddons, in her visit to me, behaved with great modesty and propriety, and left nothing behind her to be censured or despised. Neither praise nor money, the two powerful corruptors of mankind, seem to have depraved her. I shall be glad to see her again. Her brother Kemble calls on me and pleases me very well. Mrs. Siddons and I talked of plays, and she told me her intention of exhibiting this winter the characters of Constance, Catherine, and Isabella in Shakespeare. Mr. Kemble has favoured me with the following minute of what passed at this visit. When Mrs. Siddons came into the room, there happened to be no chair ready for her, which he observing said with a smile, "'Madam, you who so often occasion a want of seats to other people will the more easily excuse the want of one yourself.' Footnote. According to Mrs. Piozzi, he said to Mrs. Siddons, You see, madam, wherever you go there are no seats to be got. Sir Joshua also paid her a fine compliment. He never marked his own name on a picture, says Northcote, except in the instance of Mrs. Siddons' portrait as the tragic muse, when he wrote his name upon the hem of her garment. I could not lose, he said, the honour of this opportunity offered to me for my name going down to posterity on the hem of your garment. 
In Johnson's works, we read that he said of Mrs. Siddons that she appeared to him to be one of the few persons that the two great corruptors of mankind, money and reputation, had not spoiled. End of footnote. Having placed himself by her, he with great good humour entered upon a consideration of the English drama, and, among other inquiries, particularly asked her which of Shakespeare's characters she was most pleased with. Upon her answering that she thought the character of Queen Catherine in Henry the Eighth the most natural, "'I think so too, madam,' said he, "'and whenever you perform it, I will once more hobble out to the theatre myself.'" Footnote. "'Indeed, Dr. Johnson,' said Miss Monckton, "'you must see Mrs. Siddons.' "'Well, madam, if you desire it, I will go. "'See her I shall not, nor hear her, but I'll go, and that will do.'" End of footnote. Mrs. Siddons promised she would do herself the honour of acting his favourite part for him, but many circumstances happened to prevent the representation of King Henry the Eighth during the doctor's life. In the course of the evening he thus gave his opinion upon the merits of some of the principal performers whom he remembered to have seen upon the stage. Mrs. Porter, footnote, Mrs. Porter, the tragedian, was so much the favourite of her time that she was welcomed on the stage when she trod it by the help of a stick. End of footnote. In the vehemence of rage, and Mrs. Clive in the sprightliness of humour, I have never seen equalled. What Clive did best, she did better than Garrick, but could not do half so many things well. She was a better romp than any I saw in nature. Footnote. He said, Mrs. Clive was the best player I ever saw. She was for many years the neighbour and friend of Horace Walpole. End of footnote. Pritchard, footnote, she acted the heroine in Irene. It is wonderful how little mind she had, he once said. End of footnote. In common life was a vulgar idiot. She would talk of her gowned, but when she appeared upon the stage seemed to be inspired by gentility and understanding. I once talked with Colley Kibber, and thought him ignorant of the principles of his art. Garrick, madam, was no declaimer. There was not one of his own scene-shifters who could not have spoken to be or not to be better than he did. Yet he was the only actor I ever saw whom I could call a master both in tragedy and comedy. Footnote. Garrick's great distinction is his universality, Johnson said. He can represent all modes of life but that of an easy, fine-bred gentleman. Horace Walpole wrote of Garrick in 1765, Several actors have pleased me more, though I allow not in so many parts. Quinn in Falstaff was as excellent as Garrick in Lear. Old Johnson far more natural in everything he attempted. Mrs. Porter surpassed him in passionate tragedy. Kibber and O'Brien were what Garrick could never reach, coxcombs and men of fashion. Mrs. Clive is at least as perfect in low comedy. End of footnote. Though I liked him best in comedy. A true conception of character, and natural expression of it, were his distinguished excellencies. Having expatiated with his usual force and eloquence on Mr. Garrick's extraordinary eminence as an actor, he concluded with this compliment to his social talents. 
and after all madam i thought him less to be envied on the stage than at the head of a table johnson indeed had thought more upon the subject of acting than might be generally supposed talking of it one day to mr kemble he said are you sir one of those enthusiasts who believe yourself transformed into the very character you represent upon mr kemble's answering that he had never felt so strong a persuasion himself footnote mr kemble told mr croker that mrs siddons pathos in the last scene of the stranger quite overcame him but he always endeavoured to restrain any impulses which might interfere with his previous study of his part diderot writing of the qualifications of a great actor says je lui veux beaucoup de jugement je le veux spectateur froid et tranquille de la nature humaine qu'il ait par conséquent beaucoup de finesse mais nulle sensibilité ou ce qui est la même chose l'art de tout imiter est une égale aptitude à toutes sortes de caractères et de rôles s'il était sensible il lui serait impossible de jouer dix fois de suite le même rôle avec la même chaleur et le même succès très chaud à la première représentation il serait épuisé et froid comme le marble à la troisième etc End of footnote. to be sure not sir said johnson the thing is possible and if Garrick really believed himself to be that monster, Richard the Third, he deserved to be hanged every time he performed it. Footnote. My worthy friend, Mr. John Nichols, was present when Mr. Henderson, the actor, paid a visit to Dr. Johnson, and was received in a very courteous manner. I found among Dr. Johnson's papers the following letter to him from the celebrated Mrs. Bellamy. To Dr. Johnson. Sir. The flattering remembrance of the partiality you honoured me with some years ago, as well as the humanity you are known to possess, has encouraged me to solicit your patronage at my benefit. By a long chancery suit, and a complicated train of unfortunate events, I am reduced to the greatest distress, which obliges me once more to request the indulgence of the public. Give me leave to solicit the honour of your company, and to assure you, if you grant my request, the gratification I shall feel from being patronized by Dr. Johnson will be infinitely superior to any advantage that may arise from the benefit. As I am, with the profoundest respect, sir, your most obedient, humble servant, G. A. Bellamy, number 10, Duke Street, St. James's, May 11th, 1783. I am happy in recording these particulars, which prove that my illustrious friend lived to think much more favourably of players than he appears to have done in the early part of his life. Boswell. Mr. Nichols, describing Henderson's visit to Johnson, says, The conversation turning on the merits of a certain dramatic writer, Johnson said, I never did the man an injury, but he would persist in reading his tragedy to me. End of footnote. A pleasing instance of the generous attention of one of his friends has been discovered by the publication of Mrs. Thrale's collection of letters. In a letter to one of the Miss Thrales, he writes, A friend, whose name I will tell when your mamma has tried to guess it, 
sent to my physician to inquire whether this long train of illness had brought me into difficulties for want of money, with an invitation to send to him for what occasion required. I shall write this night to thank him, having no need to borrow. And afterwards, in a letter to Mrs. Thrale, Since you cannot guess, I will tell you that the generous man was Gerard Hamilton. I returned him a very thankful and respectful letter. I applied to Mr. Hamilton by a common friend, and he has been so obliging as to let me have Johnson's letter to him upon this occasion to adorn my collection. To the Right Honourable William Gerard Hamilton. Dear Sir, Your kind inquiries after my affairs, and your generous offers, have been communicated to me by Dr. Brocklesby. I return thanks with great sincerity, having lived long enough to know what gratitude is due to such friendship and entreat that my refusal may not be imputed to sullenness or pride. I am, indeed, in no want. Sickness is, by the generosity of my physicians, of little expense to me. But if any unexpected exigence should press me, you shall see, dear sir, how cheerfully I can be obliged to so much liberality. I am, sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. November nineteenth, 1783 Footnote. Miss Burney, who visited him on this day, records, He was, if possible, more instructive, entertaining, good-humoured, and exquisitely fertile than ever. The day before, he wrote to one of Mrs. Thrale's little daughters, I live here by my own self, and have had, of late, very bad nights. But then I have had a pig to dinner, which Mr. Perkins gave me. Thus life is checkered. End of footnote. I find in this, as in former years, notices of his kind attention to Mrs. Gardiner, who, though in the humble station of a tallow-chandler upon Snow Hill, was a woman of excellent good sense, pious and charitable. She told me she had been introduced to him by Mrs. Masters, the poetess, whose volumes he revised, and, it is said, illuminated here and there with a ray of his own genius. Mrs. Gardiner was very zealous for the support of the Ladies' Charity School in the parish of St. Sepulchre. It is confined to females, and I am told it afforded a hint for the story of Betty Broom in The Idler. Johnson, this year, I find, obtained for it a sermon from the late Bishop of St. Asaph, Dr. Shipley, whom he, in one of his letters to Mrs. Thrale, characterizes as knowing and conversable, and whom all who knew his lordship, even those who differed from him in politics, remember with much respect. Footnote. He strongly opposed the war with America, and was one of Dr. Franklin's friends. End of footnote. The Earl of Carlisle, having written a tragedy entitled The Father's Revenge, footnote. It was of this tragedy that the following story is told in Roger's Table Talk. Lord Shelburne could say the most provoking things, and yet appear quite unconscious of their being so. In one of his speeches, alluding to Lord Carlyle, he said, The noble lord has written a comedy. No, a tragedy. Oh, I beg pardon. I thought it was a comedy. Pope, writing to Mr. Cromwell on August nineteenth, 1709, says, One might ask the same question of a modern life, that rich did of a modern play. Pray, do me the favour, sir, to inform me 
Is this your tragedy or your comedy? End of footnote. Some of his lordship's friends applied to Mrs. Chapone. Footnote. Mrs. Chapone, when she was Miss Mulso, had written four billets in the Rambler. She was one of the literary ladies who sat at Richardson's feet. Raxall says that, under one of the most repulsive exteriors that any woman ever possessed, she concealed very superior attainments and extensive knowledge. Just as Mrs. Carter was often called the learned Mrs. Carter, so Mrs. Chapone was also known as the admirable Mrs. Chapone. End of footnote. To prevail on Dr. Johnson to read and give his opinion of it, which he accordingly did, in a letter to that lady. Sir Joshua Reynolds, having informed me that his letter was in the Lord Carlyle's possession, though I was not fortunate enough to have the honour of being known to his lordship, trusting to the general courtesy of literature, I wrote to him, requesting the favour of a copy of it, and to be permitted to insert it in my life of Dr. Johnson. His lordship was so good as to comply with my request, and has thus enabled me to enrich my work with a very fine piece of writing, which displays both the critical skill and the politeness of my illustrious friend. And perhaps the curiosity which it will excite may induce the noble and elegant author to gratify the world by the publication of a performance, of which Dr. Johnson has spoken in such terms. Footnote. A few copies only of this tragedy have been printed and given to the author's friends. Boswell. End of footnote. To Mrs. Chapone. Madam, by sending the tragedy to me a second time, I think that a very honourable distinction has been shown me, and I did not delay the perusal of which I am now to tell the effect. Footnote. Dr. Johnson, having been very ill when the tragedy was first sent to him, had declined the consideration of it. Boswell. End of footnote. The construction of the play is not completely regular. The stage is too often vacant, and the scenes are not sufficiently connected. This, however, would be called by Dryden only a mechanical defect, which takes away little from the power of the poem, and which is seen rather than felt. Footnote. Johnson refers, I suppose, to a passage in Dryden, which he quotes in his dictionary under mechanic. Many a fair precept in poetry is like a seeming demonstration in mathematics, very specious in the diagram, but failing in the mechanic operation. End of footnote. A rigid examiner of the diction might, perhaps, wish some words changed, and some lines more vigorously terminated, but from such petty imperfections what writer was ever free? The general form and force of the dialogue is of more importance. It seems to want that quickness of reciprocation which characterizes the English drama, and is not always sufficiently fervid or animated. Of the sentiments I remember not one that I wished omitted. In the imagery I cannot forbear to distinguish the comparison of joy succeeding grief to light, rushing on the eye accustomed to darkness. It seems to have all that can be desired to make it please. It is new, just, and delightful. Footnote. I could have borne my woes that stranger joy, Wounds while it smiles the long-imprisoned wretch, Emerging from the night of his damp cell, Shrinks from the sun's bright beams, 
and that which flings gladness o'er all to him is agony. Boswell. End of footnote. With the characters, either as conceived or preserved, I have no fault to find, but was much inclined to congratulate a writer who, in defiance of prejudice and fashion, made the archbishop a good man, and scorned all thoughtless applause which a vicious churchman would have brought him. The catastrophe is affecting. The father and daughter, both culpable, both wretched, and both penitent, divide between them our pity and our sorrow. Thus, madam, I have performed what I did not willingly undertake, and could not decently refuse. The noble writer will be pleased to remember that sincere criticism ought to raise no resentment, because judgment is not under the control of will. But involuntary criticism, as it has still less of choice, ought to be more remote from the possibility of offence. I am, etc. Samuel Johnson, November twenty eighth, 1783 I consulted him on two questions of a very different nature. One, whether the unconstitutional influence exercised by the peers of Scotland in the election of the representatives of the commons, by means of fictitious qualifications, ought not to be resisted. Footnote. Lord Cockburn, describing the representation of Scotland towards the close of the last century, and in fact till the Reform Bill of 1832, says, there were probably not above fifteen hundred or two thousand county electors in all Scotland, a body not too large to be held, hope included, in government's hand. The election of either the town or the county member was a matter of such utter indifference to the people that they often only knew of it by the ringing of a bell or by seeing it mentioned next day in a newspaper. End of footnote. The other, what, in propriety and humanity, should be done with the old horses unable to labour? I gave him some account of my life at Auchinleck, and expressed my satisfaction that the gentlemen of the county had, at two public meetings, elected me their prices or chairman. Footnote. Six years later, when he was prices of the quarter sessions, he carried up to London an address to be presented to the Prince of Wales. This, he wrote, will add something to my conspicuousness. Will that word do? End of footnote. End of section 28. Recording by Charlie, B.C. Canada.